Well, you know, we, we do love things that are great, and uh, we love to talk about great things. We talk about uh, the greatest quarterbacks in football, the greatest basketball players. We often talk about the, you know, the greatest in terms of beauty or intelligence. We do love great things, and we love to know who is the greatest in whatever your area of interest is. Well, we're going to find a passage today where the disciples actually are asking the same question, but on a much grander scale. They're asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Have you ever thought about that question? It's an incredible question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's what they're asking here. Now, before we begin, let me just remind you of where we are. Jesus has left Galilee. All the ministry that was done there, he's now finished with it. He will never go back there in his earthly ministry. He's going to travel to Capernaum to just stop. It's his adopted hometown. And he's moving to Jerusalem where he's going to die. So in Jesus' mind now, especially in chapter in these last remaining chapters, his mind is aware he's going to die and he's being very intentional about his instruction to the church. And this is what he's doing here. In fact, the entire chapter 18 is going to focus on just this intense discipleship of these men who are following him. And his intention is this that he's teaching them that this is how you're to be together in a kingdom. So this is like etiquette for us in the church, how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we serve one another. So when you hear these next four or five weeks of teaching in particular, he's really speaking about this is how we do life together. And in particular, in this passage we have, he's going to be talking about this issue of greatness. Who is greatest among us, really is the question. Who's greatest among us? And what Jesus is going to do is he's actually going to reveal to us how God measures worth, how God measures value. Am I valuable to God? Am I doing what's worthy to God? Or we're going to see this. Am I, am I, am I walking in a manner that is pleasing to God? We're going to see the answer to this in, uh, in this passage. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 18. We're just going to look at the first four verses, actually, today. I'm pushing five next week. I think it'll work better with next week. So we'll read the first four verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you see here a discussion going on, a very interesting discussion in verse 1, and then you're going to see Jesus describe what greatness is in verses 2, 3, and 4. So let's just kind of peer into the discussion. So you see Matthew records the disciples come to Jesus and say, who's the greatest? Now, let me remind you that this is one, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They share much of their material in common. But Matthew generally abbreviates his stories. He makes them shorter, more succinct. When you go to the other parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, they're more extensive. They don't have as many stories as Matthew, but they give more detail in their stories. And so a little bit of a backdrop to this story is it's true the disciples did come to Jesus and said, who is the greatest? But before that, what they did was in Luke, they actually, from Galilee to Capernaum, were already discussing this. In fact, they were arguing about it. They were arguing amongst themselves, who really is the greatest among us? Who really is great? 
Now, I don't know, it could have been prompted by Jesus only taking three on the Mount of Transfiguration. It could have been prompted by Jesus telling Peter that you're the rock and upon you I'll build this church. Could have been prompted from last week. Jesus got the fish, you know, he told Peter to get the fish, the coin out of the fish's mouth. He only paid for Jesus' temple tax and Peter's. Who paid for the other 11? We don't know, we're not told. But maybe that kind of stuff made them begin to question who is going to be the greatest. Or in Mark's gospel, this is interesting, after they're arguing about it, Jesus says, so what are you talking about? And they didn't say anything. Can you imagine? We're not going to give you an answer. We're claiming the fifth. We're not talking about it. Can you, I mean, it, it, it would be amazing. Well, Jesus already knew. Again, we have an omniscient Savior. So those, those of us who think we can kind of hide back, just remember, he knows what you know. So he asked them, but they didn't give an answer. I think after that awkward silence probably that took place, they came back and said, well, who do you think is the greatest? Now, this is not a question out of left field. Why? Well, because Jesus already told him he's going to die. He says he's going to die. So, well, who's going to fill his shoes? Who's going to take his place? Do you notice how quick? In chapter 17, they were distressed that he was going to die, and now they're already looking for jockeying for the top dog position. It's really kind of sad if you think about it. Jesus is preparing to lower himself into death in humility. And they are asserting themselves for priority. It's a sad thing. Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor of the 19th century in England, he said he speaks of his abasement and they have thought of their advancement. Do you not, can you not find yourself a little close to this fire? I mean, this struggle for greatness, this wanting to be recognized, this need to be made much of, do you not see it as part of human nature? I mean, is there not a bully on every playground? Is there not a, a, a pecking order in every clique? I mean, our move and our desire and our ambitions for greatness, it may not be on a global scale, it may not be on a national scale, it may not even be on a regional scale, but but all of us have these ambitions for greatness, if not even on a local scale or even in a familial scale. Let's say you're really not that talented. You can get the you know, sample pool has to really be reduced. But we all want to be great. I mean, whether it's the likes you get on your Facebook post or the, or the hits you get on your blog or the recognition publicly by somebody that you respect, we have this clamoring to be made much of. You know, it's not necessarily this bold-faced pride. You know when pride and desire for greatness is present, when someone else is complimented next to you, how do you feel? Or if you're not recognized. Or if people don't make the deal out of you that you think they should. I mean, there's all kinds of fear of men. Fear of failing is really inverted pride. It's reverse pride. That that, that I want to be thought well of. And and the problem with these disciples that we see in our own lives is when you're pursuing this kind of greatness, it leads to rivalry and dissension, conflict, argumentation, just that we see in the text. It leads to this fear, this fear of insecurity that someone's going to pass me or know me. And, And you know in your right minds, you know that no beauty lasts. You know that it fades. You know that no success remains unsurpassed. You know that. 
You know that no record stands without it being eventually broken. And yet we have this longing to be great. We do. And we're in fear that we won't get there. You know, we all kind of resemble uh, the queen in Snow White. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is fairest of all? Of course, the mirror. Thou, O queen, are fairest of all. And we're terrified of that time when the mirror says, O lady queen, though fair ye be, Snow White is fair far to see. We're terrified of that. And so what's interesting about this question and what's really bubbling out of the hearts of these apostles is Jesus doesn't condemn the question. He doesn't condemn the question as it's a foolish question. He doesn't say, don't be great. You shouldn't even be thinking in those terms. He doesn't do that. But here's what Jesus does. He does something so counterintuitive and so radical, so radical that that what he does is what we think of as a movement towards greatness is kind of an ascending movement. You know, it kind of ascends to a higher level. Jesus answers the question by showing us that greatness is actually a descent. You descend into greatness. You don't ascend into greatness. So we have this discussion in verse 1, and now Jesus is going to describe for us in 2 through 4 what it means to descend into greatness. And you see how he does it. He does this enacted parable, right? He grabs a child. That Greek word for child could be anywhere from an infant to, to a child that's much six, seven, eight, even older than that. We think it's probably younger because in Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus took him in his arms. So he probably is a very, very young child. And he puts it in the middle of these men, these grown men, these bearded men, these mature men. They've been delegated the kingdom of God. They've been given the keys of God. These are important men now, these apostles. And Jesus puts this little child, and he says, unless you turn and become like this child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you want to get great? You want to be great, which is a wonderful aspiration. It begins with turning and becoming like this child. It begins here. Now, notice the language that he uses, this, this turning. The, the word for turn, at least translated in the King James Version, is convert. It's not the strongest word in the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, for convert. It's not the strongest word, but it does mean to not, not external change, but an internal transformation, a radical change. Unless you turn and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This idea of turning to become like a child, he's not saying turn and become a child. He's not suggesting that children are sinless or pure and innocent, pure in faith. He's not saying that. And and he's he's not falling into some sentimental illusion that children are somehow closer to God because they haven't been stained by the world. That's not true. They're sinners just like we are. I think what he's driving at here is what children represent is <clears throat> this very low status on the social, on the social meter. Uh, children don't, the real young ones, they don't really care that they're recognized. They don't really care that they're not given dignity and respect. They don't really care that they're not first. Not until we can overlove them and turn them into monsters. I'm saying before that. Before that, they don't really care that they're seen as insignificant. They don't really care that they're weak. They don't really care that they need help. They don't care. 
They don't seem to care. I was with a, a couple uh, talking to them about their um, child dedication, and, and their, their little boy was walking around, and, uh, and he, here we're talking about you know, the, the parents and the pastor were talking and all, all this wonderful conversation. It didn't give a rip. I mean, walking around, toy, he wanted to know his mom and dad were there. That's all that mattered to him. Wanted to know they were there. He didn't, it was amazing because as I was preparing in this and meeting with this couple, and, and I'm thinking, he doesn't care who I am. He doesn't, he, he's not impressed. He's not worried. He's not excited. He is living just this kind of a carefree life. And there's something about that that Jesus is tapping into and saying that if you want to be great, you have to turn from that self-sufficiency that we have. In other words, this turning is turning away from confidence in ourselves before God and turning to a dependence. It's a conversion of self-righteousness that I feel secure with God because of my religious pedigree. It's turning from that and realizing I have nothing before God. I am humbled before God. It's, it's this turning away from self-promotion and it's moving to self-abasement that I'm just going to step down before God. I'm not going to fuss about promoting myself before God. You know, you think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, uh, Blessed is he who is poor in spirit, for his is the kingdom of heaven, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about a poverty of education or social awareness or wealth. He's talking about a poverty of righteousness. That, that we are finally, and this isn't, this isn't a kind of hang your head down low, kind of an inferiority complex. What he's talking about here <clears throat> is getting a clear understanding of who we are with God. In other words, John Stott defines humility this way, that they're honest about themselves. So in other words, I can be a great high school star in a small Midwestern town, but then you go up to the big leagues and it's a totally different game. Or if you, when I was a kid, going to Western Maryland to go skiing was great. The mountains are so big there. Really. Then you go to Vail or Beaver Creek in Colorado and it's like, just have a new definition of what big is. And this is the idea, is that when we come face to face with God, we begin to realize, this is who I am. This is the conversion that he's speaking about. These men who are posturing themselves for greatness, he goes, you you have no idea who you're dealing with. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher in London in the mid-20th century, and he said this. He said, "Uh, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole of the Christian position and secret of a successful life is just to realize two things. Oh, you will not believe this. I didn't print the two things. <laughs> it's it, it, the page ended. Oh my God. I'm not doing this because I did it last time. But let me tell you what I think I remember reading. <laughs> wow, this has never happened like this. But he said, he said this that I find all my confidence has to be in God, and I have absolutely no confidence in myself before God. That's the conversion that he's speaking about here. This absolute turning away from us thinking we're bringing anything to God. And if you think you do, you'll never be great, is what he's saying. Now, 
just let me stop here for a minute because I'm still talking about descending into greatness. Have you been converted in this way? I'm not saying have you cognitively agreed that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Have you been converted in this way? I mean, have you really come to a deepened place of understanding that before God you have nothing to bring except your sin? Have you gotten to that place? I mean, have you arrived at the place of recognizing that I have to change my view of myself? We are so desirous of appearing good before others, and we want to appear good even to ourselves, and that we have all this to bring, that we have to come to a place that we have nothing to bring to God. In fact, this is really the point of the gospel. God has designed the gospel for us to crush all human achievement. God has designed the gospel. When you believe the gospel, it's intending to crush your pride and your arrogance. Why? Because when you see the gospel, when you see the cross, we finally get to see this is how God views sin. We don't view it the same way. We usually say, well, if it's it's consensual, well, if nobody's hurt, then we can kind of mitigate where there wasn't really a lot of collateral damage. So sin isn't that big deal to us. But when you see the cross, you have a new definition of what God thinks of sin. You also have a new definition of what it took God to do to reconcile you to himself. It isn't just, I've got to clean up my life with some moral reformation. No, the cross, the crushing of his perfect son was necessary to reconcile us to himself. That's, that's what we get with the cross. The cross, we get the idea of how God views sin and, and how versus how we view it. So, so the, the cross of Christ in the gospel is designed to remove from us, remove from us, any sort of confidence in ourself. Now, I will, quote, I will quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again, and I do have it right here. So I want to give it to you. In the same piece, he said this, Greatness comes by descending from our fancied wisdom, power, righteousness, and position into a greatness evidenced by lowliness of mind. That's where you see greatness. So that's the first thing. Descending into greatness begins with turning. But, but I want you to see it's not just at that point of conversion. It follows. Look with me in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in terms of descending into greatness, yeah, it is that point where you come face to face with God and you realize how great and awesome he is, how you're not, and how you need his grace. But then there's this continued humbling of self. In other words, he's talking to these disciples. They had been converted, and yet he's telling them to turn. In other words, there's a continual process. Charles Spurgeon worded it this way. They needed a furtherance in their conversion. In other words, we are called to continue to grow in this understanding of our lowliness. We're called to grow in our understanding of our weakness. We're called to grow in our understanding of our insignificance. This is, this is what it is to become a child. And you notice what he says. He says, whoever humbles himself. Humility is not a feeling. Humility is you acting with intention. And you actually beginning to recognize, no, I want to move to having the characteristics of a child. I want to be okay with insignificance. I want to be okay with a low social status. I want to be okay without the respect of people because I have God. I mean, this is what it is to be great. It's to descend into lowness, into a lowliness. 
So that's all I'm saying today is simply this, that they're having a discussion on greatness and Jesus teaches us about a descent into greatness. Now, let me give you some very practical ways to move towards greater humility. I, I want you to be more humble. He's talking to the church here. This is the way we're to interact with each other. This is the behavior of the church. So let me try to give you some practical things here in how do I grow? How can I humble myself is the question. The first thing would be kind of a a reiteration of what I've said, that we would remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. In other words, remember your conversion. Remember how God saved you. Think about how God saved you. So in other words, when you look at that word turn, that word uh, is in the passive tense. Now, in, in Greek, what that would mean is that you're being acted upon. So in other words, what, what Jesus, it could have been translated this way, unless you be turned. In other words, someone's helping you turn. You're not turning yourself. That salvation doesn't come because you assessed the landscape and made a decision. No, God turned you. Interestingly, in Jeremiah 31, 18, Jeremiah prays, he says, restore me, and then I'll return to you as my Lord and God. He understands God. If you don't move first, I can't return. You you have to move first with grace. God is sovereign in salvation. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, because God is rich in mercy, he made you alive in Christ Jesus while you were dead in your transgressions and sins. God has to move. This is what we want to remember, that, that even though you're deepening your knowledge of God, it was all started and fueled by God. And that's a point of humility for us. Even if you know deep theology, God moved you. God called you. That's why we boast in God. That's why we don't boast in men. And Luke opened the service with this passage in in, uh, 1 Corinthians. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. You weren't wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. And the foolish people to shame the wise. He chose not the strong but the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose not the high and lofty but the lowly things and people of this world. And the despised things. Those people that society despises. He chose them. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So remember, Carol and I were just doing this the other day and we do this regularly. We talk about what would life have been like if God did not call us out of darkness? What would have been life? Uh, well, I'm sure I would have had a failed marriage, probably addicted to any number of things. I mean, God in his grace delivered us. And we do not struggle to want to go back and talk about the goodness of God, that he changed us and he deserves all the credit for it. And you know my favorite line from John Newton, which you don't need to put down on paper, thankfully, is he said this, he said that although my memory is failing, two things I remember. One is that I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. That's the gospel, people. That's what we remember. That was what he said probably at 88 years of age. That happened probably back when he was 21. 
all those years later, he's still thinking about it. So it cultivates humility. Secondly, recognize that you will struggle with pride for the balance of your life. You're going to struggle with pride. You'll struggle with arrogance. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. Everybody's wondering, anytime I come up with a quote, does he actually have it? C.S. Lewis said this, If anyone would wish to acquire humility, I can tell him the first step to recognize that you are proud. You have to recognize that all of us have a relentless commitment to ourselves. We do. We are committed to ourselves. And and we, we have got to recognize that this battle with pride is going to be ongoing. We love to be self-promotional. We love to be self-protective. We love to advance ourselves. And we have to fight that. And we fight that by recognizing it and recognizing that God hates it. Do you realize God hates pride? Do you hate it? Do you hate the pride? Does it lead you to confess pride? This morning I was confessing my pride and fear of failure before preaching. Confessing, God, I need help. I would suggest you tell others and confess to them as well, like I'm doing to you. I would encourage you perhaps to go to those who are close to you and and invite them to say, when you see arrogance and and pride in my life, would you please point it out to me? If God hates it, I don't want to like it. I don't want to make peace with it. I don't want to find it okay. So invite people in. This takes a lot of courage to do. Because when people point out your pride, guess what comes? Pride. By the gross. (laughs) By the gross. So so ask people, invite them into your life. That's what this church is for. Not just to gather, but actually to move in sanctifying grace, overcoming pride. Okay, thirdly, uh, thirdly, I would real. I got it written down again. Refuse to compare yourself to others. This is really important. I think we in this church, and I, I hear this from visitors often, wow, people really know their Bibles. We have this kind of comparison with gifts or talents or knowledge or beauty. And when we compare ourselves, we immediately find envy creeping in and jealousy starting to make its way, and then it's followed by its friends of dissension and disunity. And, and this comparison never takes us anywhere godly. I would encourage us, refuse comparison and and rejoice in the diversity that God has given to us in this church. You know, rejoice in the fact that God has gifted other people with other gifts and they may have greater giftings than you do. God actually distributes the gift and he distributes the measure in which you get it. And it was for his pleasure. So maybe we should take pleasure in that, to rejoice in it. And I would say to you, if you're struggling fighting pride, then encourage the person with whom you see such giftedness. Encourage them. Thank them for working in their gift and that God has given them grace. Thank God for them. I mean, rejoice in them. It's a wonderful way to crush pride in you is to give glory for God in the gift that you may be becoming jealous of. A fourth thing to do, is to realize that our success is from God, that if you are effective, if you are, if you are intelligent, and you, are, you, know, you do things well, and what you do always turns out, and people tell you everything you do is really good, and you do a great job, then give God credit for it. 
I mean, I'm not denying the hard work that you may exercise to develop that gift. I applaud that in you. But I would say to you, it's only by God's grace that you do that. That's what Paul said, right? In 1 Corinthians 15.10, when he's trying to remind the people he's an apostle, they're starting to go the way of other false teachers. And he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, I worked harder than any of them. And yet it was the grace of God that was at work within me. So here, Paul, he's not denying the role that we have to develop our gifts, but he in fact is saying, I know it's all by God's grace. He's giving thanks to God for who he is. Do you thank God regularly? When you do something well and people are appreciative or you assess the work and you find it to be good, do you just stop and say, thank you for the ability that I had to do that? Do you return all thanks to God? John Piper writes these words. He says, humility agrees and is glad that everything we have is a free gift of God and that this severs the root of boasting in our distinctiveness. In fact, interesting, in John Adams, John Adams wrote, you know, our second president, the book John Adams, he talks about this passion for differentiation. We love to be different because it somehow brings some credit back to us. He says we have a passion for it. And here, Piper says this, he goes, boasting in our distinctives. He says, whatever talents, whatever intelligence, whatever skills, whatever gifts, whatever looks, whatever pedigree, whatever possessions, whatever wit, whatever influence you have, put away all pride because it's all a gift. Put away all despair because it's a gift from God. So put away pride if you're taking credit for it. And put away despair if you don't have it and someone else does because it's a gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, what do you have that you haven't received? Why? I, could, I can hear him saying this. Why in the world would you boast as if you didn't receive it? God's giving you those things. It crushes pride when you give thanks to God. But then also rejoice in the gifts of others. I mean, rejoice in their gifts. Make much of them. And recognize that your gifts are for others. In other words, your gifts are not strictly for your personal pleasure and satisfaction, but God has gifted you for the benefit of others. Just two more. One, and I couldn't think of another R. Um, so engage in a ministry or engage in service that is not in your gifting. In other words, you find people and myself included, I want to work in the areas that I'm gifted in. I feel comfortable. I have historical success in doing these things. So that's what I want to do. But to do something different takes me out of my comfort zone, takes me out of perhaps my, my gifting. But it's humbling to do it. I, I mean, I'm not saying make a career out of it, but do things that maybe you're not gifted for. So we ask somebody, hey, we need some folks to help here. Well, that's, that's not where I'm strong. Well, I know that. I know that, but you know, it does say in Corinthians that where I'm weak, then I'm strong because Christ's power rests upon me. We want to move to the weak things. Whenever someone teaches, they'll often, and they don't teach regularly, they'll come back and say, wow, I've never known how much time it takes to do these things. There's a degree of a greater appreciation for them, a greater humility as well. I mean, move in areas that it, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable with children. Well, that's probably the place you ought to be then for a little bit. Just to remind yourself of your need for dependence. It brings humility. And again, it moves you to greatness. This is how you descend into greatness, by doing those things that perhaps aren't as comfortable for you. And the last thing, and really all the things that this pile up into, is to reflect on Jesus Christ. 
I mean, to reflect on the gospel. So if, who is the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven? Well, of course it's Christ himself. Why? Because if he had to descend the greatest, Jesus, in this triune relationship with God, perfect in every way, glorious, without limits on anything, he takes on flesh and dwells among us, living perfectly for, perfectly among us and then has to suffer. So he descends the farthest for us. We see this played out in Philippians 2. He says this, that Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbled himself, the greatest. Nobody here will ever, ever come close to comparing to the degree to which you're being asked to humble yourself towards greatness as he humbled himself. But though he descended the furthest, so he has ascended to the highest. And you see this in the rest of the passage. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what I'm asking you to do in terms of descending into greatness, crushing pride, is to reflect on him. And what I mean by that is to think about him. What I mean by that further is the radio goes off, the phone goes off, the TV goes off, and you think on him. And you think about the descent. Whenever you're asked to do something, or you're struggling with pride, or you begin to feel that sense of, look at what I've done well up in you. Think on him. Think on him. And, and you'll find this humility come in and begin to crush pride. Now here's the struggle, and here's the challenge for you. We don't like to think. We don't like to reflect and to meditate, and to contemplate. And I, I, I say this often to you. And I came across these words from Tim Keller in his book on prayer. And here's what he says, and he really worded what, don't think I could word it this well. But let me read his words. He says, Our struggle with reflection is often rooted in priority given to the outer life. As we focus on the here and now, we're left unprepared to deal with solitude, and we're uncomfortable with self-examination. We have short attention spans for reflection. He says, to discover the real you, look at what you spend your time thinking about when nothing is forcing you to concentrate on it. It's a quick diagnostic as to how comfortable am I with reflection. Now, friends, you've heard my words, and I think you've probably understood most of them. How will this profit you? if you don't reflect on it. This is what James warning in chapter 1. You're like a man or a woman that looks at his or her face in the mirror. And if you just take a quick glance and then you leave, you forget what you look like. You, go, you have to go back. Did I get the hair straight? Did I get? You forget it if you don't contemplate. This isn't hard. It's not, it's not heavy lifting. It's you sitting down. And you're going to struggle at the beginning because your mind's going to go in a thousand different directions. All of hell doesn't want you to reflect on Christ. All of hell wants to keep you in the here and the now, in the outer. It, all of hell wants that for you. 
But God wants you to behold the Son. In beholding the Son, you're changed from glory to glory. Reflecting on him and the descent into greatness that he underwent for us. May we descend into greatness with him. And it will be coming about through reflecting on the glory of this Savior. So let's just take a minute now and consider this. Try to steady your mind. Force it on Christ. And then Levy is going to close us in prayer in just a minute.